0: Here at Carson Valley Bible Church. And I have the great pleasure uh, to open up the word for you this morning to preach to us. Now, here at Carson Valley Bible Church, we believe in what we call expository preaching, which means that we just simply pick a book in the Bible and we start from beginning to end, verse by verse, word by word, so that nothing's missed. So, though, in instances like this, where we have Luke, who's taking a break this week, who preached last week, where we saw the fall in Genesis 3, and now this week we see the the first murder, the first homicide in Genesis 4, we see that there's nothing to be missed. That it's easy to just jump right in and to get to back, or sorry, pick back right up uh, where we left off. So now last week in chapter 3, we saw the fall of man. When we're talking about the fall of man, what we're talking about is the fall of the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, from a strait of grace. See, in the garden, God created everything perfect and good. And when he placed man and woman in the garden, he told them to tend to it and to obey his commandments. What we see here is the first covenant that God makes with man, the covenant of works. Where all that man needed to do in order to thrive in the presence of God and to enjoy him forever was to just simply obey him. And to not do what he has forbidden. But we know in the garden, what God showed to Adam and Eve was there was a tree. A tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. We know that this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that a serpent, who is a form of Satan who comes before Eve and tempts her to eat of the tree. But what was Eve tempted by? Jews tempted by a half-truth. Where Satan says to her, did God really say that? Did he really mean what he said about not eating of this fruit? You're not going to die like he said. You'll be fine. You'll be just like him, enlightened. You'll have wisdom. We see, what, tempted, or what uh, Eve was tempted to was to find wisdom in a place where wisdom isn't offered. See, wisdom can only be found in the source of wisdom, and that is in God himself. So they sought to bypass God for his truth. Instead went... To the tree. And we saw it that fall, we see the bad news that showcases the state of humanity, which is dead in sin and trespasses. See, so this is something that every single human being cannot escape. A truth that Adam, as our federal head, who is the representative of all humanity and all mankind who will be brought after him, succumbs to this nature of sin. You see, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's like putting the carriage before the horse. See, we sin because we're sinners. We see because we we sin because we have a sin nature. In this nature, um, we see the evidence of it all around us, right? We see sin everywhere. That's what we see in the text we read today, where I want to take us to Christ. Where can we find Christ in Genesis 4? I want to show us the cure. The cure to this thing that ails every bit of humanity. And just to say this if we don't believe that sin is the thing behind every single thing that ails us as human beings, um, then Christ cannot be the cure. What I also want to showcase this morning, too, is what we call biblical theology. Now, this is in contrast to another type of theology called systematic theology. Now, a systematic approach is to take something that we see throughout Scripture and to find every instance that Scripture speaks of it and form a doctrine or a teaching on that subject. We see this with marriage, or we'll go from Genesis to Revelation and find everywhere in the Bible it speaks about marriage. Justification. We'll go throughout the entire of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation to see where does God and His Word speak about how man is justified before him. And so on and so forth. But this morning, what I want to um, just establish and proclaim is is a biblical theology. To see that even though there was bad news in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, there was also good news. What we call the Proto-Evangelion. We see the first gospel where the gospel preached by God to Adam and Eve that despite their fall, there was a cure. This cure promised to them would be from the seed of Eve. Now we know this seed because we know Christ is Christ. See, this is the seed that I want to showcase this morning is Christ. See, I think there's this wrong understanding that many of us have of the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. We see that perhaps the Old Testament is just this book of this evil God who's malicious in the way he acts upon humanity. That he expects them to do things that they cannot do, which, we know, is true in a sense, right? He asks us to, or not to ask us, but commands us to obey every bit of his law. And one sin deserves an eternity in hell. But then there's Jesus in the New Testament who comes to combat this evil and angry God. That hopefully he can woo his father to be merciful to human beings. But we see that that's not the case. So we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, and we believe that all three persons of the Trinity are perfectly uh, acceptable of every single thing that comes to pass. You see, this is a plan of redemption that we see in Genesis 3. A plan of redemption that's been planned since the foundation of the world. The plan that God set forth from this seed is promising to all mankind. So again, the seed that I want to showcase this morning is Christ. To see that Christ is here in Genesis chapter 4. He doesn't just start in the book of Mark in the New Testament. Colossians speak of Jesus in this way that by him, through him, and for him all things are created. So no, this is the fourth chapter. We've already seen Christ in Genesis, and we're just continuing that thread. That biblical theology that says we're talking about one thing that moves from the beginning of the Bible to the end, and that is God's plan of redemption. That despite this good news, or sorry, this bad news, there is good news. There is a cure. And that's what we will see this morning. But you see, before we get into the Word, we need to pray again. See, we can't even understand a single thing without God's help. So as we pray this morning, before we get into the text, I ask that you pray for me. Pray for me to exposit this text rightfully, truthfully, um, as I pray for you to have ears to hear this morning. So if you would, bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord God, we come before you, a broken and sinful people, unworthy in and of ourselves to be in your presence. May we come before you in reverence and holy fear to hear your voice through your word. May you impart to us just a fragment of your wisdom this morning. We know that we can't believe or understand a single thing or really obey any of it without your aid in illuminating this text to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So may he take these truths, etch them onto our hearts, and may we walk away this morning knowing you better and loving you more. God, to you be all the glory. Amen. Genesis chapter four. This will be long-winded. We're going through all 25 verses in one shot. 26, sorry. And it begins like this. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and whoever finds me will kill me. When the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. And Behujahel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the other, her name was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and of iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech says to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For as she said, God has appointed me. Another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth, or to Seth, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. So know in context that Moses is the author of Genesis. And his audience is the post-Exodus Hebrews, or the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. See, what Moses is doing throughout Genesis is to showcase where these people come from. But most of all, who the God is that saved him. And who the God is in whom they are called to worship. In a sense, what we see is a a family history of theirs. And for us, what we see is our own family history. So we see Adam and Eve as our first parents, pointing to that sin nature that we have, which we inherited from them. That moves us into the beginning of chapter 4. What we see is Moses quickly going through a lot of it. There's a lot of time in between some of these verses, so there's a lot going on. We start off in one verse with just two people, the next we have 4 and then a few verses later we have entire cities of people now there's a lot of stuff in between that you know uh, we could explain here but um, for the sake of time and for the sake of getting to the true point of showing Christ in Genesis 4 uh, some of this stuff uh, won't be explained so start here this picture of this first um, part of Genesis chapter 4 we see Adam and Eve Bearing a child, Cain, their firstborn. Adam and Eve finally obeying God and what he's commanded. See, if you remember back in Genesis 2, where God instituted to Adam and Eve to be workers of the ground, to be fruitful and multiply, and finally, after the fall, we see some honoring of God and we see some obedience to do exactly what he said. We also see that humanity... And life is absolutely dependent on a man and a woman. But even more so, looking at the words of Eve here, where she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, we see that life has an absolutely dependency on God. See, God is the author of life. If we again go back to Genesis chapter 2, we see that man was created what? Good. And man was created in his image. You see, all of life has an intrinsic value. Though we're plagued with sin and a sin nature, there's still a dignity that we have. See, most of the world wants to say that all that dignity and value that human has is based on our opinions. But we see that there's no such thing. What has God said about the value of human life? See, this dignity that we have, and this is why we fight so hard to fight for life, to fight against things like abortion. It's because we cherish life so much. Not because we just, in our opinion, love life and love others and love childbearing, but because God has created us to do so. And we see that this love for humanity quickly degrades. In this next scene, we see two brothers Cain and Abel, one a worker of the ground and one a shepherd of sheep, bring offerings to the Lord. And what do we see? We see the first homicide, the first murder. We see a man literally rise up against his own brother. I want to focus for a second on why did they bring sacrifices to the Lord in the first place? You see, knowing that God is the author of life, there's an obligation for every single human being to worship God. You see, we are dependent on Him for life. Therefore, we have everything necessary to give to Him what He deserves. And that is gratefulness, thankfulness, gratitude. That if it weren't for Him, we wouldn't even be here this morning. That what we're sharing in is His air that He gives us. The food that sustains our bodies, the water that nourishes it, all from Him. You see, many churches today view worship, and those even outside of the church view worship, as if we come before the Lord to gain something from Him. That maybe if we just brought enough, we could tip the scales in our favor, maybe, just maybe, He would have some sort of mercy upon us. But as Luke laid out in our call to worship this morning, that see, what worship is, true biblical worship of God is to come before him with a thankful and, gratif- thankful and grateful heart for what he's already done. You see very quickly after these portions of these offerings are brought before the Lord that one is accepted and one is not accepted. I think many wrongly look at this and say that, well, this firstborn of the flock, this first and the best that Abel brings in response to what his brother brings, which is just anything from the ground. They see this as rightful worship because, well, we see it in Leviticus, where we see worship instituted by God in the form of what? Bringing him the first fruits of what? Grain, of the flock, sacrifices. You see, Hebrews lays it out that salvation was never dependent on what the sacrifice was that we bring before the Lord. That the blood of bulls and goats is not enough to save anyone, but the blood of Christ. So my treatise this morning is to showcase that what saved Abel was not the works of his hands. You see, there's nothing we could do to ever earn salvation. There's nothing we could ever do to gain it. As Isaiah says in his book, that the deeds of our hands are but filthy rags. You see, only through a heart of faith may our worship, may our sacrifices be accepted by the Lord. So it's this faith that I want to highlight, this faith of Abel that Hebrews, we'll see in a second, explains. That's why. He is saved. So, if you would, please turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 11. Now, if you've heard me speak before, you'd realize, if you remember, that I seem to go to Hebrews a lot. One, uh, honestly, this is probably one of my favorite books. Uh, showcases the supremacy of Christ, but even more so, what it does is it explains all of these things that we see in the New or the Old Testament. Some things that we have a tough time understanding, Hebrews lays out for us so we can have a illumination upon the text and to understand what's really going on here. To see that every part of the Bible points to one man and that's Jesus Christ. And specifically, what we look at here in Chapter 11 is that this faith of Abel was faith in Christ. So I read verse one through four, and then we'll skip five and we'll go to six. So it says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God." So that what is seen was not made out of the things that are invisible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In verse 6, speaking of this faith, it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him you see what this author of hebrews is saying is again abel is not saved by the works of his hands he didn't offer a sacrifice that was acceptable to the lord no he trusted in that seed that was promised in genesis 3 knowing that that would be christ And even though Abel had just a keyhole view of what this Messiah would look like, we see him fully and we see him clearly in the Gospels. That the seed is Jesus Christ. That this one, this Christ, would be the final and ultimate sacrifice to save sinners like you and I. To save sinners like Abel. See, another thing I want to highlight is Abel is just as deserving of death as anyone else. No one escapes that reality. Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, in chapter 3, he lays it out for us, saying that all of humanity falls short of the glory of God. See, every single one of us stand condemned in and of ourselves. So pointing to this sacrifice, that it is only by faith in Christ, may our deeds be accepted by him, If we take a look back in Genesis chapter 4. We see that Cain is angry after this judgment that he receives on God. We know right here, and this is um, just my opinion on the text. So I think what we see here is just a a judgment of God. A judgment of God pointing out his sin. Or we see questions asked to Cain. So after noticing his face falling, noticing that the heart of Cain is angry, God says to him, "Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will you not be accepted, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what we see here is a, a call to repentance. This is the universal call for all mankind. Again, going back to that fact that no one escapes this reality that every single one of us is condemned. We're enemies of God. After the fall, there's a great chasm between us and Him. The only cure is Christ. And the only way to Christ is through repentance and through faith, faith sorry in Him. So that universal call goes out to every single one of humanity. Every single human being is called to repent and trust in Christ. But we know that not all do. Some, as we see here in Cain, enjoy rebellion. Their worship is self-seeking. The only thing they desire is to worship creation and not the true creator. What we see is a heart that's ungrateful for the things that God has given him, Ungrateful for God himself. And after this discourse between God and Cain, we see Cain rise up against his own brother and murder him. Now, as I went to Hebrews earlier to help us explain what's going on here in Genesis 4, there are other places in the Bible that speak of this moment in history. Speaking of Cain specifically, Jesus mentions him in his Gospels when he's uh, condemning the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Jude, in his epistle, links Cain as to false worshipers within the church, wolves in sheep's clothing, those who are bringing uh, worship for the creation and not the creator to the congregation, ones who deceive. We see John, in his first epistle, also say that Cain is the son of the devil. And what we see here in Cain's murder of his own brother, looking at the words of Christ and his condemnation of the Pharisees, we see that this man who kills his own brother pointed to the Pharisees who would kill their own Messiah. You see, all throughout the Bible, is these instances where those who are righteous, prophets specifically, or killed for righteous sake. Martyred for the sake of righteousness. You see, the greatest martyr who ever lived is our blessed Christ, the one who was killed by his own brothers. Killed by those who claimed to worship him. Claimed by those or killed by those who claimed to have been waiting for him. He died at their very hands. See Cain is in a place of absolute rebellion. The only response he has to God is a rhetorical question: "Am I my brother's keeper?" From here, we see God's punishment. And there's plenty of instances where we see if people who offend God are killed instantly. If you look at Uzzah, who just simply simply touched the ark, was killed right on the spot. Ananias and Sapphira, just for lying to the Holy Spirit, were killed on the spot. King Herod, killed and eaten by worms. So some of us would probably look at an instance like this and go, how come Cain seems to have almost received a way of flourishing after this? If he was to receive punishment, wouldn't he be killed right on the spot? Wouldn't that be justice? Yeah, absolutely. That would be justice. But what we see here in contrast to between these two brothers, Abel receiving eternal life with God instantaneously after being killed, we see Cain being driven out east of Eden. And this difference that we see is what we call the difference between Saving grace and common grace. Saving grace is what saves us. Given to us by God through faith in Christ alone. But common grace, common grace is what all humanity, even rebels against God, are able to enjoy. As Luke was praying earlier for that perfect plan of God, it's what this common grace is that even rebels against God, God still has a sense of grace upon sinful humanity for it to flourish. We know that nothing can thwart God's plan, that he even uses rebels to bring about that plan. Now Cain's a fugitive, running from God, no longer is able to be in his presence The Lord gives him a mark that whoever would kill him would be punished. See, I'm not going to go into detail what this mark is. It really doesn't say anything on what it is. All we know is that there was uh, this mark placed upon him so that anyone who would find it would not kill him. See, Hebrews further explains the blood of Abel as a blood crying out to God with vengeance see what would happen in these times if a brother were to kill another brother or a friend kill someone else the family of the deceased would hunt down that murderer and kill him we know that God says vengeance is mine see why Abel's blood cries out for vengeance the blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness Again, we see that there is even more of this common grace given to Cain. That he is able to bear a child. Well, he didn't bear his wife did. But he had part in it. <laughs> but you see, all of sinful humanity is divided into two people. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And even those who are not in Christ get to enjoy these great gifts of God. We see the difference between the two is that one worships God in response to what he's done with a thankful and grateful heart, such as Abel, but the other is only self serving, only desiring to worship the creation and not this creator. And as we continue on, we see very clear distortion, this further degradation of sin, that sin isn't um, a plateau. It's not just staying at a a constant, healthy level. No, sin is getting worse and worse and worse. And very quickly we see that from the fall of Adam and Eve, it degrades very quickly. In that very first verse in chapter 4, we see Adam and Eve doing what they were commanded to do, to be fruitful and to multiply, to bear a child in the confines of marriage. See, very quickly, a man like Lamech decides to have two wives. And to highlight something else, we see that where sin comes into play, sin is simply taking the good things of God and twisting them and distorting them into something that God didn't intend. See, we all enjoy marriage, but God instituted marriage just between a man and a woman. Anything else is contrary in his sin. And this goes for anything else that humanity decides to enjoy, whether it be food or drink. We can very easily sin against God by abusing his gifts. Worshiping the creation again, rather than the creator. And continuing on in this further degradation of sin, we see Lamech say to his lives, boasting about murdering two men. See, not only is he out of a state of saving grace of God, he's happy about it. This seems weird in a sense, but I think we can understand where he's coming from. You see, there's a sweetness to sin. And if it wasn't sweet, we wouldn't do it, right? But we know that the sweetness of sin, even though it looks like that apple that that witch brings to Snow White, is rotten to its core. And Adam knew his wife again. I'm in verse 25. And she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God had appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son born. And he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, continuing on this common thread of redemption that we see through a biblical theology coming from Genesis all the way to Revelation is that despite sin, nothing can thwart God's plan of redemption for fallen humanity. That even though a man falls, he saves some. When they call upon the name of the Lord, these people are looking back at the Christ, the seed that was promised in the garden of Genesis chapter three, the seed that would save all of humanity. And it's this seed that we worship this morning. See, this Christ is the only cure for the sin that we see here. Now, if you're in Christ, if you know that you trust in Him by faith, if you know that He lived the perfect life that you're obligated to live and couldn't, that He died as a penal substitutionary atonement for you on the cross, that He bore your sin, that He imputes to you His righteousness necessary to stand before God, Take heart. Take heart. There's forgiveness in Christ's blood. And not only does he start a good work in us, he brings it to full completion. But if you do not know Christ, you're under this very curse that is shown in Genesis chapter 4. You're living in a state of rebellion against the God. You're not grateful for the things that he has given you. But he offers you the free gift of salvation through repentance and faith in Christ. To be truthful, it's the free gift that will cost you absolutely everything. To you, sin isn't going to be as sweet anymore. You'll have to die to yourself. Be crucified with Christ. But he offers that faith freely if you would just repent in him and to trust him. In church, there's no greater place for us to end there this morning. Though sin ails every single one of us, Christ is the cure. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that while much of the world um, just longs to um, have an unhindered worship such as we have here in Minden, Nevada, may we not take any of it for granted. May we just come before you with grateful and thankful hearts for who you are and what you've already done knowing that all the sacrifice that Christ made was absolutely sufficient to save all those who would call upon his name. So God, as we leave here this morning, may he just be magnified on our hearts, and may we offer him worship in response to what he's done for us, not in order to tip the scales, so to speak, into our favor. For God, there is nothing we can do for salvation, for the only thing that we bring to the table is the own sin our own sin that made his sacrifice necessary. So God, this morning, encourage us, teach us, again, to know you better and to love you more. We're just so grateful for you and for your word. I pray these things in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.